Hey, Dante. Hey, Hannah. We're here for another episode of I'm Living Proof, and I'm so excited today we're featuring Johnny's story. Johnny's episode is titled, I'm Living Proof, Young Men Can Heal Too. Yeah, and I'm so glad that Johnny's story really touches on a lot of different important topics. He talks about what affects him emotionally, personally, all the way up to what affects the systemic problems surrounding mental health. Yes, Johnny goes deep into his journey. And, you know, without further ado, I think we should hear from Johnny. Dear Johnny, at age 15, you don't have the words yet to describe the things that you are feeling. Please know you are not to blame. What you don't know yet, but that will one day become abundantly clear, is that you live in a world where stigma against those with mental health challenges is interwoven into the systemic framework of our society. The pervasiveness of this prejudice will do something to you that it has also done to countless other humans for time immemorial. It will leave you, still as a child, left to navigate a life or death health challenge largely on your own. This is not your fault. In fact, the shame and guilt you are feeling are not your burdens to bear. Rather, these emotions displaced upon you represent the insecurities of a world denying its vulnerability. This is especially true for you as a boy. Culture will tell you that you are not to know yourself emotionally. Boys, it will be said and insinuated, are to do everything in their power to mask their weakness, less risk being labeled as unmanly and unworthy. You should not take these social constructs to heart. They will soon be found to be outdated, hurtful, and dehumanizing. The depression and anxiety that you are feeling in this moment are completely normal reactions to the circumstances you are facing. The year is 2006. You are a sophomore in high school, an active athlete and performer, and you have just been delivered a health diagnosis that will change the trajectory of your life forever. At first, you will navigate confusion. Crohn's disease will be described to you by some of the world's leading doctors as an autoimmune disorder solely affecting your digestive system. What you will learn on your own is that this prognosis was far too limited in scope. There will be days where the battle for your mind will feel far harder than the battle for your body. In fact, you will come to find this distinction is mostly meaningless. It will become evident that the psychological exists in a symbiotic relationship with the biological and environmental. The journey you are about to embark on will at times feel incredibly isolating. Yes, you will have your loving and supportive family, but the depth of your despair will be largely hidden and left to metastasize in your young, still developing brain. No doctor will suggest that you undergo routine mental health screening and monitoring, depriving you of early interventions that may have allowed for much needed course corrections. No school counselor will proactively reach out to you, limiting your ability to intellectualize and verbalize the psychological storm you are weathering. Unfortunately, the mental health infrastructure in the time, place, and culture you are living in is riddled with holes and you, at no fault of your own, will slip through the cracks. College will not, as the saying goes, be the best four years of your life. Sure, you will have your fun. You will make lifelong friends 
grow academically and mature into young adulthood with fond memories to last a lifetime. But your mental health will be pushed to its limits. You will struggle with the lingering effects of Crohn's disease, surrounded by peers seemingly in the prime of their lives. You will feel fragile and broken at a time when your friends feel strong and desirable. You will tell yourself you are irreparably sick and fundamentally ugly. You will feel entirely unworthy. And due to a non-existent culture around mental wellness, you won't tell anybody. Lacking know-how, you will seek to cope in all the wrong ways. Please do not blame yourself for this. You were doing the best you could with the skills that you had. Shortly after graduation in 2013, the sudden loss of a romantic relationship will push you over the edge. Years of unchecked mental illness will culminate in a perfect storm of agony. The proverbial bottom will fall out and give way to unrelenting psychological and physiological pain. For six months, every waking moment will be marked by a feeling that your brain is on fire. Your entire body will be turned into an amalgam of despair. The simplest of tasks, whether it be getting out of bed or stringing together a coherent sentence, will sometimes feel like Herculean endeavors. The personality that defined you, the one that used to come so effortlessly, will seemingly evaporate, leaving you feeling vacant. You will spend many nights wondering if you can ever get back the part of your soul that made you feel human and alive. You will search years for that answer. Suicide will cross your mind. You will speak this thought into existence to the people you trust. Some will not understand, but the ones who do will be the heroes of your story. The storm will last far longer than you thought possible, but you will survive. At times, contending with the guilt of having a mental health crisis and how you behaved will feel like the most intransigent obstacle on the road to self-forgiveness. You should fight like hell to dislodge yourself from this psychological trap. It's simply depression masquerading as morality. But most importantly, with all of this confronting you, you will do something profoundly courageous. You will take your recovery into your own hands. You will find your voice. You will pour your heart and soul into recovery and the day will come when you are far better than you ever thought possible. For this, I am and always will be so incredibly proud of you. The needle will slowly inch forward each week as you go into therapy. Week in, week out, for years, you will work with your therapist to steady yourself on a road to recovery. Healing will not always happen quickly or in a linear fashion, and that's okay. True healing doesn't fit into the parameters of a culture predicated on duality. That said, the most seismic shifts in who you are as a person will come when you start running. In 2015, when you are 24, as both a challenge to yourself and others, you will sign up to run the Chicago Marathon on behalf of Erica's Lighthouse a nonprofit focused on addressing adolescent depression. It is both the boldest and smartest decision you will make in your life. Having never run more than three miles prior to that year, the training regimen will test the limits of your mind and body. But within this crucible, you will greatly grow your capacity for discipline and resilience. 
Not only will you complete your first race, you will go on to run six more. Throughout this process, you will feel physically and mentally stronger each and every year. There will, of course, be bumps along the way. But with time, the bumps will become far less disorienting and the overwhelming trajectory of your healing process will move you forward. As you grow into your late 20s, a sense of stability once lost will begin to creep in. You will also be blessed by a few surprises. The decisions you will make for your body, including radically changing your diet and overall lifestyle, will culminate in your doctor doing a biopsy and finding your health condition is in deep remission. You will seek out more cutting edge mental health treatments, which once complete, will make you feel like you have a new and improved brain. And through all of this, you will learn some important lessons. You will learn that the oft-repeated phrase is true. It does get better. That said, you will also learn that the road to better needn't be so excruciatingly hard. For more than a decade, you will get to look at the infrastructure of wellness from the outside looking in. What you will see is a system that is not only in disrepair, but intentionally designed to marginalize those who struggle with mental illness. And in that, you will learn to take your anger and translate it into action. Because you will feel, as you look around at your support network, that you were one of the lucky ones, that you, by mere happenstance, had privileges that millions of those struggling with illness do not. And you will feel that this simply cannot stand. This cannot be the way things are. So as you step into a new and better life, please do not stop fighting for those who cannot. Speak out, get involved, play your part in advancing the movement for a better mental health future. And do not stop until everyone knows that indeed, it does get better. Love your older self. Thank you so much, Johnny, for reading my letter. Of course, Dante. My my privilege and my honor. Um, you know, we were we were chatting uh, before the interview started, and I told you that this is therapy. Um, and so, being able to put those words down um, and to get that on paper, um, it, it it is there's healing in that as well, and yeah. uh, hoping that other people hearing that um, they find uh, healing uh, as well. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up. Cause one of the first things I was going to um, ask you, um, was how did it feel to write that letter to your younger self? Where were you at mentally when you were writing this letter? Yeah. Um, you know, it, <laughs> this past year has been a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I were to write this letter, uh, in June of last year, it may have a different feel to it. Um, and I think that just speaks to how mental health is always a work in progress. Um, so while you can hear over the course of my letter, um, you know, uh, mountains have been moved, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's the, the person I am today is very different than the person I was in 2013. That said, uh, mental health uh, needs constant tending to. 
Um, and so to, to answer your question more directly, um, it felt good writing the letter. Now, um, we are starting to get back to normal. Um, things are opening back up. Um, I just had a wonderful, um, event in my life where mm -hmm. I married my partner. Congratulations. Uh, about, yeah. Thanks man. About four weeks ago, um, after being together for three and a half years. Um, so while there was a year that was largely stagnant and that meant you know, having to make sure I was being very intentional about maintaining mental health in a time where everyone's mental health was impacted. Um, this came at a very good time to, to put those words down. And again, it was, it was therapeutic. It, you know, being able to think about your younger self and what you wish you could tell yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, it helps kind of, you know, while I have done a lot of work to dislodge trauma, um, you know, it always feels good to kind of put things to bed, even if you're putting them to bed again. Um, and so to be able to look at your 15 year old self and say, don't worry, like mm -hmm. it's going to be hard, but you got this. Um, it might take a long time, but it's going to be okay. And remember to love yourself. And you can never tell yourself that enough. Like we're so, especially in our Western culture, like we're so, ingrained to just like not practice self-love and I struggle with that all the time and I'm someone who's like gone through like many different avenues of the mental health system and wellness and I still struggle on a day-to-day -day basis to remind myself to do that and so for DBSA you know providing me this opportunity to put those words down to give me an opportunity that there's a lot of words there but at the crux of it it's I, I love you. Like, and remember to tell yourself that and that's okay. Um, so yeah, it was great, um, having that opportunity and, uh, thank you for, for providing a, a platform to do that. No problem. We, we love to do these things. We know that people in our community will benefit from hearing these stories and hearing that it was therapeutic, but self-love and self-actualization, that's, that's all very important to the wellness journey, right? Um, one of the things that struck me about your letter is that at the time, you were worried about being labeled as not only like unworthy, but also unmanly, Yeah. right? And when did it become clear to you that it was like this construct of gender and yeah. how we want boys to handle mental health? Um, that's what you were wrestling with at the time. When did that become clear to you? Mm -hmm. um, it took me a long time to grapple with that. That was probably one of the last pieces um, that I was able to put into the puzzle. Um, you know, I think so much of that social construct around manliness is implicit. Mm -hmm. Um, there's so many things that are happening at a subconscious level, um, or subtext that we put into the culture where no one is explicitly saying, you know, don't share your emotions because you're a man. Um, but we represent it in the movies that we watch. Um, we implicitly say it in the jokes that us men and guys make to one another, Mm -hmm. um, don't be such a girl epithets like that, um, that are couched as, Oh, it's just a joke. Um, but in that there's meaning and we internalize that meaning. And so while I can't point to a time in my life where I really felt like there was someone directly saying you cannot be this way, or you cannot say these things because you were a man. 
that message was implicitly said in a million different ways. Um, in terms of when I was able to, you know, really kind of sort out like the gender construct and make that a part of my story and a part of my healing journey, I'd say that really came in the last five years. Gotcha. Um, and a lot of that came from the, the new push in the gender equality movement. Um, and so, you know, I, I have to credit, you know, this, this new wave of, of feminism and what it's bringing into the culture um, and, and both being challenged by that um, and learning through that and learning to listen to that. Um, going through that process helped me find the words, helped me intellectualize what was happening from a social construct standpoint as, as a young man struggling with mental illness. So I didn't know it at the time, but it was, a, it was something that through a lot of learning a lot of listening um, that I was able to kind of uh, come to terms with. And, you know, knowing that, knowing that there was societal level forces that were, you know, shaping how I thought about myself and how I was behaving, uh, it helped me move past those things. So one thing in your letter that I want to, um, I guess, dive deeper into or like set the timeline up for our listeners is you were um, 14 or 15. You are in theater. You're doing well. You're you're swimming. You're an athlete. You're doing well. And then, bam, you get diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Correct. Yes. Yep. That's correct. And now you're a 15 year old who not only is going through uh, the changes of being 15, but now having to manage this, this new uh, avenue of life for you. Yeah. But it wasn't until later that you also discovered like, hey, maybe my mental health is being affected as well. Or did it all happen? Did it all com- culminate at the same time? Yeah, it, it probably was, Dante, honestly, all happening at once. Mm-hmm. But in terms of when I was able to identify it, specifically as it relates to the mental health issue, that yes. came way later. And I think that's interesting. I think that's informative. Like, I knew right away that I had a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I knew my body was injured. And I had a lot of people telling me that. I had world-renowned doctors saying, this is what you have. This is how your body is out of alignment. Your body. But in terms of what I was feeling emotionally right. and what I was feeling psychologically, there was not a team of people that came in to kind of hold the hand of a 15-year-old who's still a child and say, these are some of the things you might be experiencing. And doing that social emotional screening to kind of help lead me um, to a path where I could recognize and articulate what I was feeling psychologically. They took a biopsy for the Crohn's disease. There was no psychological equivalent to that. There was no biopsy of my mind. And so I spent years having symptoms, both internally and externally, that were just ignored. And so it was happening at the time. It just wasn't identified both by a support network right. or by myself because I wasn't given the tools to identify that. So no one, at least in that initial circle of clinicians and even maybe even teachers and advisors, either recognized that, hey, 
we just diagnosed this team. This team just got this diagnosis, a, a life-changing diagnosis. Maybe we need to talk to them about how that affects their mental health, but also no one advocating on your behalf to say, hey, maybe um, we should ask Johnny how he's feeling right now. Yeah, that, I mean, that conversation didn't really happen. That's more or less true. I would say implicitly the people who got it from a common sense perspective were my parents, mm-hmm. right? And so they checked in um, and they, they did God's work on that front, but they're not formally trained in that, right? right. So they, do, they did what they knew best, right? They gave me love. They checked in with me. Um, but in terms of being able to marshal resources, there was nothing done proactively by the school system and there was nothing proactively done by our healthcare system. I think I did see one psychologist it was either a psychologist or a psychiatrist once or twice. And it almost felt like the questions that they gave me, it was like the lowest bar to clear. It was mm-hmm. like, are you having suicidal thoughts? No. Are you thinking about hurting others? No okay, this kid's good, <laughs> right? So it was like one or two meetings. So in terms of like that proactive, holistic, like proactive investment, that that didn't happen. And so there was years where I was going in to meet with doctors and everything was focused on, you know, how was my gut doing? Mm-hmm. How was my immune system doing? Mm-hmm but there was no ancillary component to that that had to deal with mental health. So there was years of missed opportunity to screen and where my parents again, every so often would say, Hey, are you good? You know, those, those proactive interventions, both from a school system and from a healthcare system, just, they they were pretty non-existent. And if they, if they were existent, like I was talking about with the psychologist that I met with, like literally two times, it was the bare minimum. Yeah. I, I get the sense that there was a lot of silent suffering. Yeah. And I'm assuming that there are um, listeners who are either in the same position or have loved ones in the same position. What advice or what do you wish you would see from the healthcare system or the educational system to help a student in that, um, in that same position? Mm-hmm. I would say basic social emotional screening in schools should be universal, right? How that system looks like that's still very much being figured out, but some sort of, you know, at the elementary middle school and high school level, having some sort of system where kids are checking in on a day-to-day basis to report how they are feeling. Um, in terms of the healthcare system, understanding that, especially when a kid is dealing with illness, that that is a deeply traumatizing event. And so mental health has to be part and parcel to the care that they receive. Yes. Especially, especially with children, because children, their minds are still developing. I mean, at age 15, I was 10 years away from where science says your brain is fully formed. Mm -hmm. And so the expectation and burden cannot be placed on them to self-report. 
they have to, on a routine basis, be provided the resources that they need to verbalize and intellectualize the things that they are feeling. Right. And that should be a part of the process, especially when a kid is dealing with chronic illness from start to finish. It's interesting that you should say that, that we should not put the blame on the student or blame on anyone dealing with chronic illness. Yet, when you went to college, you expressed in your letter that in your internal struggle, you were doing some self-blame. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's Um, that's me speaking today, Dante. That's me speaking at 30. Right. Right. And I know to say that because I had to go through the process of learning to do that. And like I said, at the top of the interview, like, I'm still not good at it. Mm-hmm. And that's why writing the letter was so <laughs> therapeutic for me, because I have to remind myself to do that. And so like self-rejection, um, self-recrimination, um, dealing with guilt, all of that stuff. I mean, that was a huge part of what was preventing me from fully healing. Right. And the words that I was saying to myself, you know, I I remember looking into the mirror and this is when I was, you know, still very sick, hopped up on a bunch of different drugs for um, the autoimmune disease. And, you know, I was broken out with acne from head to toe, um, was deeply underweight and just being like, you are so ugly, like you are hideous and talking to myself in such negative ways. Right. And, and where does that come from? Why, why was I talking to myself that way? Where did I learn that from? Where did uh, self-rejection, um, you know, become okay? Um, and that's reflective of, you know, the culture that we all grew up in right. that sets a standard of beauty, that sets a standard of manliness that sets a standard of how it is okay to talk to yourself and to others. Um, And I was both internalizing that and using it against myself. Um, And it was deeply problematic. And it's something that I can now say confidently don't do. Right. um, Because there was a lot of pain and struggle and a lot of hindrance in my journey that was necessarily put back unnecessarily slowed down just in a lot of ways because of how I was talking to myself. Yeah. And you, you tell your college self that looking back now, you recognize that you were doing the best that you could do at the time. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And especially when you're talking about being in college and everyone seems to be at the top of their game, right? The yeah. peak of their game. And here yeah. you are dealing with this chronic illness. And now Stepping back to the timeline, this is around the time uh, the depression, you finally get like a diagnosis for depression, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. And so a lot of this stuff was just bottled up. I mean, I probably could have received a a diagnosis for anxiety before any of this happened. Like I was always a super anxious kid. Um, I can remember, you know, because I was in performing arts, like, you know, before taking the stage, like, even though it was something that, you know, I had great aptitude for, like just having panic attacks, right? Mm -hmm. Like panic attacks that went just beyond, you know, your normal run of the mill stage fright. And because I could pull it off, like, it was okay. And because I could pull it off, I could talk to myself and be like, 
well, you're still succeeding. Right. You're, you're doing okay at school. You're doing great at arts. You're doing great with swimming. Like nothing was, you know, apparently wrong, but there was a lot going on internally. So there was probably a diagnosis that could have been made as it relates to anxiety, even before I got sick. Right. And then there was probably a lot of proactive intervention that could have happened when I did get sick that could have maybe prevented or held off any sort of major episode with depression. But to your, to kind of recap what you're getting at Dante, because of, you know, where I was at in college physically and in terms of my health and contrasting that with where I thought other people were at. I talk in my letter about people being in the primes of their life and feeling like that was robbed from me. Mm -hmm. That comparing, that contrasting deeply wounded me psychologically. And that's where I think a lot of the depression started to creep in. And so that when the summer after graduation, I had the sudden loss of a relationship. That depression was there and it was not addressed. And it was like the bottom fell out. Right. And so there was no, I had no resilience to weather that because my baseline was already so low. And so I think there's a lot of people that even though they are not in a formal mental health crisis, they are in a state that puts them at a very high risk of the proverbial bottom falling out. Mm-hmm. If they are to, if they are to confront an acute stressor in their life. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was struggling with moderate to mild depression, struggling with moderate to mild anxiety dealing with those symptoms unaddressed for years and years and years. And then an acute stressor, a traumatic event happened and it just took me out um, from a mental health perspective. Diagnosis isn't the end all be all. You have pointed out multiple times that you were probably living with depression, anxiety long before you got a diagnosis, but was it helpful in any way to have a link? language or words to put to what was happening to you at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll give you another example. So, you know, it's 2013, have a huge mental health crisis. And I'm experiencing everything that I articulated in my letter, like feel like my brain is on fire every day, just like struggling to formulate a sentence, struggling with day-to-day activities, like trying to put together socks, like trying to pair socks that match was really hard and just like, didn't feel like dealing with it, trying to get out of bed, you know, every day, really, really hard. That was the moment in time where I was given a diagnosis of depression and anxiety. And that helped. Um, It didn't cure everything overnight, um, but it did give me something to hold on to and make sense of the things that I was feeling. It helped depersonalize it. With that said, Fast forward to 2019, when I'm still dealing with the legacy of depression, still dealing with the legacy of anxiety, feeling like, you know, I've recovered 80, 85% of where I once was, there was still a 15% that didn't feel right. And so I went and I met with a different 
psychiatrist. And on top of my depression and anxiety diagnosis, he gave me a diagnosis of PTSD and a diagnosis of OCD. Well, all of a sudden, there's these new labels. There's these new identifiers. And it gives me a new path to explore new treatment. And so with the diagnosis of PTSD and the diagnosis of OCD, that's where I really started thinking about the trauma that I experienced. And for so long, for me in my head, and I think largely where it's still seen contemporarily in our culture, is PTSD has to do with something that is profoundly traumatic. We think of soldiers at war. We think about the victims of childhood abuse. And in that, there was a lot of trauma that I was carrying, specifically for my diagnosis, that I was not honoring. It was trauma that was there, but it was trauma that I had minimized. And so receiving that diagnosis helped validate that I, too, had been dealing with and had not gotten past or fully processed a lot of the trauma that I had experienced over my life. And so that's where a diagnosis can be very helpful. And that's what led me into um, some of what I, I think I referred to in the letter as more cutting edge treatment. Mm-hmm. That's when I got EMDR, which is the eye movement desensitization reprocessing treatment, which is geared towards people who do have PTSD and OCD, and then also TMS, um, which is a non-invasive treatment that helps stimulate uh, the brain. And both of those treatments were, were really, really helpful. So diagnoses, why they aren't the end all be all, they can help someone mm-hmm. make sense of what they are experiencing and point a pathway forward towards recovery. Yeah. You, you touched on, uh, just now the resources that you use to, um, help with your, your treatment of these, um, mental health conditions. Was there a catalyst Uh, or something that um, sparked you saying, I need to take my recovery into my own hands? Yeah, it happened at a couple different inflection points. So one, my hand was forced in 2013, because I knew I could not live that way. Um, Looking back in a more mentally, looking, looking back, in a more mentally supportive world, whatever the word is you want to use, a mental health-centric world, I probably would have taken time off work, right? Things right. were so bad <laughs> that like, I could barely function in the work environment. And so when things are that bad, it was like an obvious inflection point for me where it was like, something's wrong. You need to meet with professionals. You need to get better. And there was a lot of frustration during that process because it didn't happen overnight. And there wasn't one pill that worked. And I had to marshal a lot of resources beyond your run-of-the-mill psychotropic drugs to try and get better. So in 2013, my hand was kind of forced in that regards, where I knew, I knew I could not go on living that way. I could not build a life that way. I could not build a profession that way. I could not do any of those things, feeling what I felt. And so that that rock bottom kind of pointed me in the direction of you're either going to stay here and that is going to greatly change the trajectory of your life 
if you are to live, if you are to survive this, because I said I was experiencing suicidal thoughts, or you can go through the formal mental health structures of our society and try to get better. So that was 2013. And then in 2019, I think that was much more of a situation where I did proactively say to myself, not necessarily because my hand was forced, but because I came to a place where I realized I was still not the best version of myself. Right. I was still kind of in survival mode, not thriving. And I was not operating at a 100%. And I did not want to settle for not operating at 100%. So I said, there's still something wrong. I still want to get better. Let me get a second opinion. And when I got that second opinion, I was able to add to my diagnosis, was able to add to my framework of understanding of the things that I was experiencing. And then I was able to get that additional treatment, which really helped me kind of complete even though I said at the top of the interview, it's still a day-to-day thing I have to tend to, but largely complete um, the heavy lift of the recovery process. Taking a step back a little bit, you talk about you were feeling vacant and that it will take you years to search for an answer, right? Do you ever go back to that way of thinking or do you go somewhere new entirely? Or do you find yourself looking for like those same answers today? Do you find yourself in the same position today? Yeah, that was one of the longest parts of the journey was feeling like I lost part of myself and wondering if I would ever get that back. Mm -hmm. So like as a young kid, you know, I was very spontaneous Um, I didn't have a lot of self-doubt. I had a lot of confidence in myself. Um, I could very much be the life of the party. And that spontaneity, that energy, that vitality was just gone. And I literally felt like a different human being. And there was years, starting with 2013, where I was like, that's just gone. Um, But you know, if you stick at it and it can be a very glacial pace, but slowly, but surely you find yourself, you know, I remember it was like 2014, a year into this whole thing where like, I think I legitimately laughed at the first joke I had laughed at since before the mental health crisis. And it was like, Oh, like I'm not faking it anymore. Like I didn't have to fake a smile. I didn't have to fake a laugh. Like I actually had room in my mind to think something was funny. This is what it feels like. And like little by little, you start to have more of those moments. Now, this was a huge detour in my life. Mm -hmm. And there was years spent invested in recovery. And so from time to time, and I try to check myself on this, you still play that what if game with yourself. What if this didn't happen to me? What if I wasn't diagnosed with Crohn's disease at age 15? What if I didn't have this huge mental health crisis at 22? What if I could have, you know, continued what I was doing in the arts? What if I could continue what I was doing with swimming and water polo? Would I got in a scholarship to do those things in college? Would I have gone on to be a successful performer? Like you play that what if game and sometimes it can be hard, but we're dealt the hand we're dealt, mm-hmm. right? 
And I have to remind myself of that every day. And there's been so many gifts and silver linings that have come from this experience too. And so I have to remind myself of that too. The things that adversity and going through this mental health journey have gifted to me. There is not a world, Dante, where I run marathons if I don't have the experience that I had. Right. I had to give myself a challenge to dig me out of that proverbial hole. And a friend ran the Chicago Marathon in 2014. I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And I was like, I just need to give myself something to do and to go big. And I did that. And the only world where I do that in is the world that I am living in today. So you do go through those moments where you do question or you do have regrets about, you know, will I ever be the person I once was before that? And the answer is no, (laughs) you know, we can't, we can't go back. You are forever changed, but I think there's therapy and there's healing and recognizing and being grateful and practicing gratitude for the things that the experience of hardship gifts to you and the resilience that it gives to you. And now I also, outside of those experiences for me personally, I find a lot of meaning in being able to be an advocate. I find a lot of meaning in being able to feel like I can be a resource to other people who are going through these experiences. I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me over the last four to five years, friends, family, where they tell me, hey, I'm experiencing this too. Hey, family friend of mine, their kid was just diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Can you talk to them? And those experiences help me find meaning and purpose in what I experience. And so while this letter was deeply healing for me, mm-hmm. those moments of meaning and being able to connect with other people and being able to, you know, journey with people as they confront some of these hard things that those moments are profound for me too. And it's like, okay, maybe just maybe I experienced what I experienced so I could be a resource to other people. So it doesn't have to be as hard for them. Um, that it's not as heavy of a lift. That's not to mean it's not going to be hard, but to just kind of lighten the load a little bit, because like I said, at the end of my letter, like it didn't have to be that hard. Right. Right. It did not have to be that hard. And there was a lot of lessons learned. And if I can pass those lessons on to other people so that they can't, um, so that they do not um, have as rough of a go at it, then that's worthwhile. Um, And so that's kind of how I wrestle with, you know, knowing that the trajectory was greatly redirected. But you know what? maybe I've come out ahead. Being a peer yep. on um, multiple levels, right? The, the chronic illness and living with a mood disorder, that mm-hmm. opportunity presented itself to you and it, you took you took it head on, right? For sure. Um, before we let you go, uh, is there a wellness tip or wellness strategy that you practice every day or frequently that you think will be beneficial for our, our listeners? Yeah, there's not a magic bullet. You know, that was one thing that I had to learn. And so my wellness tip, and this is something that I have to remind myself every day, is 
take a holistic approach, knowing there are multiple facets. There are a lot of different facets that feed into what it is you're experiencing. And so success is probably not just going to come from any one thing. Success is not going to come just from taking medication. Um, success is not just going to come from getting a good night's sleep. Success is not just going to come from changing your diet. It's going to be investing and being committed to doing all of those things as much as humanly possible. Um, based on the resources that you have available to you. Um, and so that's my mental health tip is, you know, know that this is a holistic journey. Um, and also knowing that some of this journey is, is also about being countercultural and being okay with that, mm -hmm. knowing there's going to be certain choices that you have to make for your body, for your mind that other people don't have to make. And that's okay. And don't feel bad because you feel left out or feel different because you are acting in a way that is supportive of your health and your mind and your body. Thank you to Johnny for sharing his story. You can go to dbsalliance.org slash I'm Living Proof to read Johnny's letter, read letters from previous guests, or submit your own story. The I'm Living Proof a Letter to My Younger Self podcast is hosted by DBSA Programs Manager, Hannah Zeller, and Digital Communications Manager, Dante Freeman. If you like the episode, great. You can let us know by rating and reviewing the show in your favorite podcast app. You can also support DBSA's mission and help us bring more shows like this one by going to dbsalliance.org slash donate. Thank you. <laughs>